Hi, this is Zach Semke with PassFast Accelerator, and thanks for tuning in to this special bonus episode of the PassFast podcast, recorded at Passive House Network's 2023 conference in Denver, Colorado. And a big thank you to Enersign for the support of the series. The interview you're about to hear was hosted by Carmel Pratt, co-host of the Next Gen edition of Passive House Accelerator Live. I'm Carmel Pratt with Bright Power, and I'm here interviewing on behalf of Passive House Accelerator, Craig Stevenson. Craig, do you want to give a quick intro bio? Sure. Happy to be here. Love to be on the Accelerator. Um, Craig Stevenson. I'm with the Oros Group. Um, I co-founded the firm about six years ago, and we like to operate at the intersection of building science and data science. Um, which is to say, you know, we understand the benefits of an energy, an envelope first approach to energy efficiency. Um, but where we come in a little bit different to the problem is we're solving for the operational side of the bi- uh, building as well. We want to make sure that the building can maintain that level of performance over its life cycle. And to do that, um, we bring technology to bear on that to make sure that we get what we paid for or the building's performing as it should. So based on that, I'm going to dive right into all of my selfish questions about building performance and what we know and what we don't know. <laughs> um, so if you had to put a percentage guess on what you think an average predicted or modeled versus actual site EY of a passive house building, where would you put that percentage guess? Modeled versus actual. So I assume we're talking about new construction. Yeah. So if we have a new construction building and I model to pacify this criteria and for new construction, you're going to be in the neighborhood of a 14 site EUI, 14 kbtu per square foot per year-ish. And then the question is, normally how do these buildings start operating as opposed to that target? Right. Um, I would say that, well, let me preface my answer this way, is that the majority of the businesses and the work that we are involved in are commercial and institutional projects. So we do a lot of work in the mush market or the municipal university schools and hospitals. And when we do that work, we are working in that environment with open integrated operational technologies. So an operational technology is a building automation system, lighting control system, security system. It's all the technologies that go into a building. All of that data is going into a central repository or an independent data layer. And then we're using that data across OTs, across platforms, to gauge and improve the operations of buildings. So if you've heard of things like fault detection and diagnostics, that is a technology-based optimization for buildings. So we can look and say, are we heating and cooling at the same time? Uh, Is my damper stuck open? Um, Did I exceed my CO2 levels of, say, 800 ppm? We use technology to answer those questions and then re-inform the technology. So we can do things like CO2 demand response. We can do... um, you know, other programs, uh, other optimizations of that building. So for us, um, the building of the performance is really a point in time thing, Mm -hmm. right? So can the building be commissioned to a 14? Yeah, we could do that all day long. Can the building maintain a 14? Without technology, I would say in these commercial office buildings, it becomes really challenging. Um, When you're in a smaller and less complex building, it might be easier to do and maintain. But in a complex building, you really do need technologies to maintain those levels of certifications because people just 
feel that, hey, this is a zero energy building. We can leave our lights on. This is a zero energy building. We can heat and cool through the weekend. It doesn't right. matter, right? We're you zero turned energy. over a zero energy building to me, so that's how it functions. So that's I can do whatever functions. I yeah. want. That's exactly right. And that's the reality of that people start to overthink that you have it. And really, what the Passivat solution is, is it gives you the ability to operate at those low levels of performance, but you still have to do it, right? So we still have to maintain that weed technology to help us do that. And so at a minimum, what would you say if, you know, you're cash-strapped and um, you want to get the most bang for buck in terms of data points, what would you say are, you know, the priority items to, um, to monitor? Love that question. I love that question only because every time we want to talk about smart building infrastructure on our large commercial projects, everyone looks to the mechanical engineer and next thing I know I'm spending millions of dollars and I've got, you know, every outlet in my building has a sensor on it. What we do is we try to build use cases from our owner's project requirements, which is our goals and targets, to the technology. If we set it up as a goal, we want to know that I reach it. So if we're setting up an energy goal, for example, that's a primary source utility meter, right? I need to understand whole building consumption to measure whether or not I hit our passive house goals. So what we would do is we would build use cases from the OPR to the technology for meters and sensors. So we don't just meter and sensor because we can or because the technology exists. So the question then becomes, what is my minimum viable product, right? The minimum viable product that goes into a building is I need my primary source utility meters. We would prefer to have sub-meters if possible, and those can be done relatively easy with CTs and electric and things like that. Um, we would prefer to have a few IAQ sensors because we're always talking about indoor air quality in our buildings, and we want to measure and monitor that because that's that's something if you don't measure, it can get out of control quickly. Um, and then we need a place for our data to go, right? Our data has to go somewhere. So we typically bring that into a data aggregation component, commonly known as a JACE. So it could be a Niagara JACE or a Distic Apex. Um, but those, those, um, those devices collect the data, translate it all into one common language so we can see it, and then distribute it to the data layer. So really the minimum viable product Meters and sensors at a minimum primary source. If we could do some sub-metering, we want to do that. A couple of IAQ sensors, data aggregation component. Really, that's it for a building. So, if you're dealing with a commercial office building, four or five stories, you know, maybe 150, 200,000 square foot, you're probably talking about a $20,000 um, outlay of capital for that minimum viable product. And can you go a step further and describe? Um, the ideal sub-metering, right? Is it based on the um, program or the tenant? Like in a commercial space, you at least want to, you know, sub-meter each, each space or tenant. Is it, I don't know if you're working mixed-use buildings, but sub-metering, sub you know, apartments versus common area spaces? Yeah, great question. Um, and again, we look to our OPR and our goals and targets to figure out the answers to that question. A lot of people like to sub-meter by four because it's just logical, right? Why not do it? Well, our argument is if you have tenants that could possibly occupy a floor, that makes a lot of sense because then I can de-aggregate their bills and have them pay for them directly. Um, but if I've got a building that's not conducive to that because it has a main stairwell or something like that, or it's a connected building, then all of a sudden, why am I going to measure by floor, right? It's only ever going to be a 10-1 tenant. It doesn't make sense. From a building science perspective, we look at use. So in that regard, we would rather see mechanical systems. We can do that through a simple panel board, throw a CT on a panel board. So mechanical systems, lighting 
control plug loads, separate the plug loads off of these panels and separate them and put a put something on them. Because that data is actionable data. If mm -hmm. I see that data, I can go back and look at our defaults and our passive us models and say, how close were we? Did we guess right or did we plan for this right? So that to me is, a, is actionable data. And I, I can make a real case study and argument for a meter or sensor in that instance. Mm -hmm. Whereas a floor doesn't really give me, short of management from an administrative perspective, is it giving us actionable data? Right. It's really kind of not. In most instances, and I don't want to talk about this universally, but in most instances, I would say we would shy away from the floor unless there's a compelling reason to separate tenants and look for our uses. And if I could get that, like if you have a kitchen, for example, I'd really be interested to know what my kitchen is using, especially if I electrified it, right? So we separate those uses, and it's pretty much going to be mechanical systems, lighting control, plug load, um, and then you would see kitchens and any other specialties like an elevator, things like that we'd want to see. Mm -hmm. um, and again, that that's actionable data, and it makes sense to do it, especially for the value of the CT. I would argue it pays back pretty quickly. Yeah. And so on the actionable data side of things um, and the access and the ownership of that data, so I mean, maybe that's two separate things, right? Yeah. One is, is um, having access and being able to see the data. And the other thing is understanding and making decisions and changes and actions from that data. What, what would you say um, is the biggest hurdle to both of those sides and also the opportunity or the, the solution? That's a really, really good question, and clearly you spend time in the space to even consider a question like that, so I appreciate it very much. Um, this concept of who owns the data is so 1990s. Um, there's no question who owns the data. The building owners own the data, period, end of story. So, you know, when you get into these proprietary systems, um, whether they're a proprietary digital twin or proprietary operational technology like a building automation system, they would think, hey, it's my platform and I own the data. And they used to make that argument. Um, that's changing. The macro trend in the industry right now is they do not own the data. The building owners own the data. And then the question then becomes, what do I want to do with it? Well, if I democratize my data, then we're starting to see new uses built on that all day long. I literally just came from a conference in Washington, D.C., on smart building data, and I'm looking at the next generation of digital twins that's coming into the market right now. We're talking about one of them put on the screen, here's my building, and they asked it an AI question. What systems are feeding my kitchen? And it literally went through its digital twin, pulled it up, actually showed it in the GIS, and you can point to it, and then it showed all the sensors from it so you can see if any of them are in any faults or failures and how that's performing. That's where this is going, and that only becomes an option when I democratize my data. If my data is stuck behind a, a proprietary OT or it's stuck in some other system that I can't get access to, I can never even be open and available for the conversation of what can we do with data next. Data is the next value base, right? It's the next oil. And everybody is starting to see it and everybody is saying that the, the, the cost to collect data in buildings, time series data in buildings, is is so reasonable at this point to not do it is just missing a major opportunity to influence the performance of your buildings. And we bring, from a building science perspective, simulation, time series simulation into that world. Because the context that they're using, they're using historical data and they're using comps, right? I'm interested in that for exactly three seconds and I get really bored really fast and I want to move on because it doesn't answer my question. Did I get what I paid for? Is the building performing as it should? And the only answers to the way we can answer that question is by integrating simulation into that digital twin. 
So again, it's another example, once I democratize my data, of things that we can do with it that are going to be to our owner's benefit. I want to ask you a little bit more on the, um, the data access and democratizing. Have you, at Oro's, um, had to take through uh, take a client through the transition from a proprietary or you know inaccessible <laughs> closed source data onto a different platform. What does that look like, um, or is it a start from scratch you know kind of situation? Yeah, um, that is another really good question. So um, think about it when you think about like our building science community here understands existing building retrofits, right, and what that takes. I can't go in and rip a set of windows out of a building that were put in a year ago. No one's ever going to do that. It doesn't pencil. It doesn't pay. I'm not going to rip a roof off that's not yet in a life cycle. So when I do a retrofit of a building, I have to respect triggers and sequences. And triggers are life cycle, deferred maintenance, um, natural renovations, any opportunity to touch a building. Same thing applies in, in uh, smart building infrastructure, right? So if you have a new building, our argument is create a standard for your technologies. Right. When I mention open integration technology, that is a specific definition in our space. It means something. So we want to make sure that we're managing that standard. When you start bringing data out of a building, there's cybersecurity concerns we have. So we have to manage that standard. There's point naming conventions we have that we have to manage that standard because we're bringing the data into a single environment and we want to do something with it. We want to make our life easy, right? So there is standards that we would want to do on a new building before we ever started penciling our solution. And then we execute and implement those standards. Well, when we do this work for our clients and we create a standard, we do the same thing in the existing buildings. The difference is with the existing buildings, no one's ever going to recommend we rip out a building automation system that's not yet in the life cycle. That doesn't make sense. So I have to transition our legacy systems into our standard. Well, what does that mean? get as much data as I can from the building right now without touching it or harming it in any way, shape, or form. I don't want to limit its life cycle. And then when the opportunity presents itself to replace or do something different, then execute our standard. So we can do that literally across technologies for all of the OTs I had mentioned. But more importantly, when I don't have an OT in a building, say I don't have a density counter for people counter in a building, but we want to do that. When I execute that in an existing building, I can It'll execute it against standard. the standard yeah. and then connect it to our infrastructure. And the infrastructure is the data aggregation component and the independent data layer. Now it just plugs in. Mm -hmm. And now I have my data. So some of those things can plug in semi, some of those things can't plug in at all, and then some of them can't. Now, if there's a compelling reason that we have an OT that doesn't share data, it's closed loop, and we really, really want that data, then we can probably write an API or put a controller on that without still ripping the system out of the building so we can patch it until it gets through life cycle. So there's lots of ways to solve the problem, but the reality of it, I mean, the simple answer to your question is create a standard, adhere to your standard, and transition your legacies into that standard without ripping them out first. As you can. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. like, it's just... Uh, it, the logic is similar, almost identical to past or retrofit, right? An interfit. Um, retrofit. We're not going to rip windows out that aren't a life cycle. I'm not going to rip a BAS out that's not a life cycle either. Yeah. So uh, taking the angle of the Building Performance Assurance Council and Passive House and data, right? What do you think the future is of Passive House building data? Yeah. Um, so... As board chair for Passive Us Network, 
I am involved in a lot of advocacy for Passive House to decision makers, whether they're private or public entities. And they all want to figure out, you know, what is the best way to get here, right? Everybody wants the same thing. Every conference we go into, people are talking about building decarbonization. Thank God our industry has finally understood. Buildings are using all the energy and we need to do a better job at that. So now the question becomes how, right? So it's no longer a matter of like, why, you know, why. The why has been answered. Now it's a matter of how. So as we go into the how question, um, the data is going to become compelling for us. Because if I can show... All the, all the wonderful work that all these, all these um, passive house practitioners are doing and show the, these, the, the buildings that are performing these levels, it convinces the next decision maker that you're not beta testing this, that you're coming into a proven solution. All you have to do is execute, and we're going to show you how to do that and where your economies of scale work and how you can do this in, uh, for affordability without spending a premium. So to me, that's where, that's where Passive House Network and BPAC has a role. We're, we want to advocate for PassFast because we know it's the right thing to do and do all the same things we've been doing for years and years and years. But we want to take our data now and use our data to compel, yeah. right? Why aren't we building buildings to Passive House? To me, as a practitioner, I know I can do it affordably. Brussels has been doing it. Other communities have been doing it. New York, Boston have codified it at this point, basically. So why are we not building every single one of our buildings to this to this um, level of performance? And the answer is because of change, fear. You know, they blame it on, oh my God, it's going to cost too much, or there's a learning curve for this. But if we could start to tell our community and show our community through data that this exists, that this is happening, and all they need to do is you know, understand how to do it this way, I think it's going to have that compounding effect of transforming our market so that we can make this business as usual. And right now, it's not. We still go on a lot of projects and we're still convincing owners that, why are we not doing passwords? Why are you not looking at your envelope first? Why are we solving this with a renewable strategy? And we know that it doesn't pencil and it's not paid because we've done it so often. But now, how do we convince those decision makers? Well, we convince them with the data. Yeah. We show them. Yeah. No, and they, they, we, all of us have been asking for this for years uh, because that's the pushback that we get, right? Show me the operational building and um, and don't just show me year one and two post-occupancy. Show me like how this is maintaining its performance over time. And I hope that that, you know, to your point, we've gotten past the understanding that Passive House is the way. Um, now it's, okay, these buildings are online. How do we keep them performing in, in that way? How do we own that moving forward and not just say, okay, we got this certification, you know, the, the building got its, uh, its, its CFO and, and, and now the magic wand has been waved. Um, these buildings should hopefully stand up for a hundred years and, and continue to perform that way. I completely agree with you. I think that the, the, the data takes the emotion out of it, right? We always say that empirical data takes the emotion out of it. Without the empirical data, we're caught in the discussion of, you know, yeah, you can, no, you can't. And, you know, you're trying to make people change from the way they've done things for the last 30 years into a better way. And they don't do it because they're just comfortable where they're at. But when you see the data, you can't unsee it. Right. right? Yeah. So when I'm looking at a building, it's the same topology of the building I'm doing now. And that's operating at a 14 EY. And it's, and it's performing at that level right now. And our building owners didn't pay a premium to do that. I'm looking at the next one saying, explain to me again, why are you not doing this? I mean, this is, this is the right way to do things. So if we can use our empirical data to take the emotions out of this and then show the show the pathway for change, then I think that we're going to scale past us even that much quicker. Now, 
we're scaling fast us, right? We know that. It's We've happening. been to this conference. <laughs> We've seen it. The numbers are there for us, and we see it coming online, and we're looking at thousands of buildings coming online. But the empirical data is going to transform the rest of the market, and that's what we have to do. And we have to do it quickly because yeah. climate change is on us, and we need to figure out a way. Yep. We're on a time clock. Well, thank you so much, speaking of time, for, for sharing your time and insights. I really appreciate being in conversation with you. Hey, this is awesome. Anytime I can talk about PassPass and geek it out <laughs> with someone who, uh, who, who operates at that same level, man, this is awesome. We really appreciate it. All right. Over and out. Thank you.